I was given a list of really great topics for Lent, um, and I thought that there was one that was very appropriate for us to be able to go over, which was asceticism. Uh, and to be honest with you, asceticism is a very strange topic to speak about, and it's because we generally hate it very much, and we try to avoid the topic as much as possible that we will will basically relegate it only to monks. And so the common external physical practices that we associate with asceticism, like fasting or keeping vigil or matanyas, these are so far against what we want to do that we speak rather actively against them uh, in private conversations with our family and friends. But we'll put on a charade in front of everybody else and we'll make it seem like we really like to do this kind of stuff. I can't tell you how many times I've had the same conversations with, with people over the years regarding this, um, they won't be in the presentation that you probably think. So some people are very open about their hatred for ascetic practices. Uh, but most people in the church will veil it somehow. So things that I've heard even during this Lent, uh, why do we have to fast 55 days if Christ only fasted 40 days? Are we better than Christ? Um, why do I have to keep vigil? I'm so tired after work and dealing with my family, obligations, and kids, I don't want to stay up. I really don't want to wake up early to go pray or to go to church on time. Uh, I'll do that on my own time. And even those people that say they enjoy, enjoy doing these things usually have some sort of warped motivation for them. So uh, I've fallen guilty to this where you say, I love to fast because it gives me a chance to lose weight. Um, staying up all night, at church, like when we were in high school and college, and we'd go for a kiyak, it'd be so fun because you get to go hang out with your friends, right? It's just a time where you can go and have that sort of sense of community. And matanyas are good because it's a, a good way to exercise, and I don't exercise otherwise. There's no way that I stay in shape, so matanyas are fine. And what's funny is that entirely absent from this are the words God and willing sacrifice. There's no God in that whatsoever. Even when we teach our kids at home or at Sunday school, there really isn't a firm grasp as to why we do any of these things. And so false understanding begins uh, to develop as well and infiltrates the church so that people think that they know why they're performing these kinds of practices. As a quick example, uh, I have heard the thought that the human body uh, is what is weighing us down and it's opposed to the spiritual life, so we have to condition the body as much as possible to allow our spirits to soar to God. Have you guys heard something like this before? Um, it's very prevalent, and it sounds like it can fit so easily into our understanding, especially when you read certain biblical verses and you interpret it out of context. It sounds like that's what the Bible is saying. I'm going to give you guys an example. Galatians five sixteen through 17 says, But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. That sounds really straightforward, right? And so the Spirit wants to do something. The flesh opposes it, therefore you should oppose the flesh. The Spirit is that which is interior to us. And the flesh is the exterior body. This is wrong thinking, by the way. This is not how the Orthodox Church sees this. And the spirit that's actually being referred to um, 
in the verse is not our spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. And the flesh that's being referred to is not our body. It's our fallenness. Uh, but in this mindset, this fallen understanding, this wrong understanding, the thought then becomes that you have to discipline the body. Someone tried to make this even more relatable, and they gave this example by saying that the body is like a dog, and attached to the dog is a rope, and leading up to the rope, at the very top of the rope, is an eagle. And this dog is so heavy that if you starve the dog, and if you beat the dog, you can get this dog to be so light that it will allow the eagle to take it away and soar, right? So the eagle in this understanding would be the spirit, and the dog would be the body. And so the understanding here would be, try to do everything that you can in your power to discipline the body so much that you starve it and you weaken it so that you can let your spirit soar. Um, I'm very emphatic when I say this. This is heretical understanding. This is so against the church. And it's not just heretical in the sense of the word that we usually commonly say it now. Now we hear anything that could be uh, an opinion that's different from sort of the mainstream of orthodoxy and you say, oh, that's heresy. That's not what I mean by this. This is a heresy that has been condemned over and over again in the church. And yet, 2,000 years later, we still have this wrong mentality about this. Uh, and the proof of this is that if having a body is evil and the physical world is evil, then why did God create it and say that it was good? So let's try to dive into the depths of asceticism and see why it's important for every human being, not just monks, for every single one of us. And in order to do that, we have to see how things were in the beginning. Man was made in the image and likeness of God. And being in the image of God, according to some fathers, means having been given certain characteristics that God inherently has in his being. Stuff like rationality, conscience, freedom, the prospect of immortality. These are natural to God. And the likeness is something that man strives for by growing more and more in his relationship to God, more in love with him, by choosing God's will above his own. Man didn't know evil before the fall, but he still had a choice, not between good and bad, because he didn't know what bad was, but between God and not God or to phrase it differently, between God and himself. Our relationship with him was supposed to be a mirror of him, an image of him, an icon of him. The word icon means image in Greek. That's what it means, right? So we're supposed to be an image, an icon of Christ, an image or an icon of the Trinity. Our identity is in him, so we should see what God is like in order to understand what we're supposed to be like. We usually do this the other way around. We see what we're like, and we'll try to impose that understanding onto God. God is Trinity. He's three persons in one essence. In our fallenness, when we say three persons, we usually think of three separate individuals, and separate in the sense, because of our fallenness, that we try to take what we think about individuals as we understand each other, and we force that onto the mind to make sense of who God is. So three individuals for us means three that have different characteristics, different motivations, 
different wills. It might mean that someone is more important than the other. And that thought has also infiltrated in the church as well, when we try seeing how it is that the Trinity relates to one another. Because of our fallenness, we try to think of God the Father as the greatest one. And even though we'll say, oh, but they're all equal, there's still a thought that people have, well, God the Father is greater, right? Because we don't understand how three can interact and be truly equal with one another. And so this is not the personhood of the Trinity. The Trinity has one essence and has one will. There's a, a very complex writing by St. Gregory of Nyssa that's called On Not Three Gods, and he goes through just pages and pages of trying to explain how three persons is not three gods, but one God. And the thing that he keeps coming back to that stands out is that they all have one will. There's one will. And even though the persons are distinct from one another, so that we can say that the Son is the one who took flesh and not the Father, or that the Holy Spirit is the one that came down on the day of Pentecost and not the Father or the Son, they are truly united in one being. Just to give you guys a little bit more of an, of an introduction here, when we read in the prologue of the Gospel of St. John, we see that he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And that's how it's commonly translated, but the original doesn't actually say that. The original does not say that the Word was with God. And again, when we think of Someone being with someone, you think of two distinct individuals that are standing side by side to one another. The word here that is used is not with. The word in Greek is pros. It means towards. The word was towards God. And that uh, is different than the Greek words meta or para, which is how it is that they would usually say with. Right. So pros is very a very personal and distinct way of speaking about this. To be towards someone means to be looking at them face to face. And the face in Greek terminology is a person's identity. So to see someone face to face, to be face to face means to see him as he is, to know who he is as a person. There's a very intimate relationship there. And you'll see that a lot if you pay attention to the writings of the Greek fathers, that this idea of the face is so prevalent. And so that is the relationship that we see. There's this interpenetrative relationship that the Father is not just next to the Son and the Son next to the Holy Spirit. It's that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and they're both in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in them. It's a very complex way of, of trying to understand something that's very simple, but it's so far out of our understanding now because we've fallen so far away of understanding what a person is. And so even in our concept of trying to define what a person is, you immediately have certain preconceptions. And this caused plenty of issues in the fourth century amongst the fathers when they were trying to figure out how to even come up with this terminology. And they couldn't come up with something that was very satisfactory because at the end of the day it's a mystery and we don't understand because we don't see it. We don't have an example within our own lives to be able to see this is what it's supposed to be like. And yet Christ calls us back to this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, which we're going to read in a couple of weeks together during Holy Week. He says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one. So you can see here that there's this, this call back to us being unified again. There's a oneness that we're supposed to exhibit if we're going to look like what we were called to, if we are to reflect that image of what the Trinity is like, because that's what we were created for, right? That's how we were created, that we're supposed to exhibit this kind of unity, that we'd still be distinct persons, but would be so unified with one another that we'd be seen as one, just as God is one. Our reflection of perfect oneness with one another would reflect that Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The love of the Son for the Father and for mankind is displayed evidently for us in the Incarnation, in His submitting His human will, our human will, once again to God perfectly in the face of agony and death. And He says this by saying the very famous phrase that we know, Not my will, but thine be done. When man fell, we tarnished this likeness we had to God, to this reflection of the Trinity. Our will was no longer inclined to the will of God. Man was previously naturally inclined to unify his will to God's will. He wasn't forced to do it, but it was his nat- it, it's what brought him pleasure. That's what was good for him, and he knew it. After the fall, man became the center of his own world. This is fundamentally critical for a discussion that's going to be going on about asceticism. After the fall, man became the center of his own world. His will became the most important thing for him. And when I say that, don't just think of man as sort of generalized mankind. Think about yourself, right? When I see myself, I am the center of my own world. My will is what matters. And that's evident in the story of the fall itself. It's not that the fruit in and of itself contains something evil. Because how could it? God made it. Right? God made it in everything that he made. He said it's good. So the fruit itself is not the evil. And it wasn't simply an arbitrary commandment. And this is usually how it is that we'll try to explain or we'll offer this example when we speak about fasting. We'll say God told them to fast, and because they broke their fast, he told them don't eat, and when they broke their fast, that's what it is that led to their fall. And there's a bunch of really terrible theology that you can drive from that too. You could say for yourself, for example, if you don't fast, then you are falling away from God. You are sinning if you are not fasting. That's, that's not good theology. That's not good theology, right? But that's how it is that we'll try to make sense of it because, again, our understanding of fasting and these works of asceticism is not very clear. No, it was a willful movement on man's part to say that he preferred his own will, his own comfort, his own pleasures above God. 
That changed the natural tools that we had that were supposed to be inclined to God to be against Him now. Now it's all about us. And it remains like this, though now we have the benefit of having the Holy Spirit to be able to work along with us. Still, we're not naturally inclined to God. We don't naturally want to do His will. You might think you do, but if you say that, you're fooling yourself. It's not natural to us. And you might think that's not true. Here it is, like, for example, if I have kids, I'll bring them to church, right? I mean, I'm bringing them so that I can have them develop a relationship with God. Clearly, my relationship with God is reflected in my family dynamic. But see what happens if anyone ever gets sick in your family. If your spouse gets sick, if your kid gets sick, if someone ends up suffering and they die. Look at how it is that any of us end up reacting to that. Suddenly God, who we thought we were doing His will and we're going through exactly what it is that He wants us to, to do, suddenly He becomes the enemy. Why would you do something like this? Why would you subject me to this, right? Everybody else has kids. Why is it that I had to lose mine? Everyone else can live to old age. Why did I have to develop cancer so early? And it usually hits harder when it's not us. It usually hits harder when it's someone else in the family, right? And we cry out for mercy from him as though he's inflicting this on us. And we still value those around us more than God. I want to say that again. We still value the people that are around us more than we do God. And it's okay that that's the case right now as long as we acknowledge it. It's fine that you acknowledge the reality that God is not the number one in your life. Because that's the first step. Now, what does all of that background have to do with asceticism? Asceticism is a visible means for us to try to deny our will. To deny our comforts to deny those things that we actively seek after to give us pleasure. It's a way to deny ourself. Recall that man became the center of his own universe after the fall. Everything now revolved around our own comfort. And it's not that the things that God gave us suddenly became bad for us. Food didn't suddenly become evil. Eating meat or cheese or any of this stuff is not evil in and of itself, right? The same with sleep. Keeping vigil is obviously a very important thing that we try to uh, strive to do within the church here. Uh, but recall that the very first time that Adam slept, what happened? The first time Adam slept. Eve, right? Eve was created. A beautiful unity that developed, that was supposed to display that unity in God. Recall that the only time, the only time that God created something and he said, this is not good, is when he created Adam and Eve was not created yet. He said, there's something that could be better than this. And he creates Eve and then he says, this is very good. This unity is very good. And so that's what sleep used to be able to derive, right? Something very good. And through sleep, Adam was therefore able to reflect the trait of God, to display his image fully. When man fell, he evicted God 
from his own comforts. And when Christ took flesh, he taught us the ways of salvation, as we say. What was the way? Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We get this completely out of order now. We believe that first we follow him. Notice the, the, the order that he gave to us, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. First, we think to ourselves, we should follow him. We have some sort of moment where we say, yes, I will follow Christ. I want to live this kind of life. Then after some time, we begin to become more and more aware of the crosses that are in our lives. And we listen to sermons and we read books and we see how it is that we're supposed to accept the suffering that's in our life. To the point where one day we hope to graduate to be able to pick up our cross willingly. Then finally we have this mindset that if we really want to go the whole way, we can start denying ourselves. We can start denying our will. He says it's the first thing to do. Deny yourself. In the Ladder of Divine Ascent, which is a book written in the end of the 6th or the beginning of the 7th century, that outlines the 30 steps that man has in his, in his spiritual life, in his ascent to God. The first two steps that are there, the first two steps in the spiritual life, are renunciation and detachment. Renouncing what it is that you have and detaching yourself from the world. These two first steps are very clear to us when we see monks, right? We say, very clear. No, they renounced everything that they had. They gave up all their possessions. And they have no detachment. They sever themselves from their family, from their friends, and they go to the monastery. Easy. That's not a life for me. The first two steps of all of our lives is supposed to be renunciation and detachment. The way of monasticism is no different in its goal than our own way. St. Basil the Great, who you guys know very well, says that the ascetic life is the way according to the gospel. The way according to the gospel. That's all it is that the monks are doing. They're just living out what it is that the gospel says. But they're living it out in a particular way, right? That way doesn't have to be the same for us. But the thought is, is that they're trying to bring to life all of the commandments that Christ said. That's all. We think that they're going above and beyond and they're doing all of this um, very rig rigorous kind of lifestyle. But all they're doing is really just trying to live what it is that Christ gave us. Why fasting then? If we agreed that food isn't evil, then why do we abstain from certain kinds and for certain periods completely? Is it because we want to become like angels that have no need for food, as though that's the spiritual way? We eat so often. We, especially here in the West, we eat so often that it's a very telling reminder of how much we want 
our will in things. Look at any time of the day, even when you're fasting. Fasting not from the strict abstinence uh, view, but even then. And you start thinking to yourself, what am I going to eat when I break my fast? What do I want to eat? Especially during this fast, you could say, I've had food enough. It's been, it's been years of this. I'm just, I'm over it. I'm over it. I don't want that anymore. Let's have something that's a little bit, like make it nice. Do something. Um, it's an easy way to re- constantly remind yourself of how much you want things to go your own way. Not just in food, in life, right? It is a constant reminder. It's a little way that you could see a mirror of yourself and say, this is how much I want things to go my way. We think of the spiritual life as big moves that we have to make. We start going through life wondering what God's will is for us. His will is outlined for us in the Bible. It's very clear what it is that he wants us to do. He said it, and he lived it. He showed us how we're supposed to do that. But we want a secret way. We want to hear God's voice in a different way. God, make your will known to me. What am I supposed to do? And we'll do this for everything, right? Like, who am I supposed to marry? What school am I supposed to go to? Where am I supposed to live? What kind of car am I supposed to drive? Etc. Etc. Fill in the blank, right? Who listens diligently to the gospel to begin with? Who hears the words of Christ and thinks of how they can put it into practice in their own lives. We often just want to live our lives as we deem fit and add him on as an additional component. He's like a booster shot for us, right? We have to be immune to the world, so we're going to bring him on and so that he can help us. You want to hear his voice? Do what he tells you to do. Imitate him. Deny yourself. That's what he says. Deny yourself. He showed us the greatest denial of self possible when he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. You know, sometimes we, we translate that as taking the form of a surf, uh, servant, right? But it's not servant. The word is dolos, which is slave. It's just, I think, a little bit too harsh for us, but it's, it's important for us to see that harshness. He took the form of a slave. He had the glory of his divinity. He had no need to come. He didn't have to come. But he emptied himself. Do you empty yourself of your own will? He showed us practical ways to do this in the flesh. Ask yourself honestly. Do I want to be with him? Because that's what this is all about. Do you want to be with him regardless of how you suffer, regardless of your circumstances? Can you sacrifice for him? Imagine being married and and one spouse doesn't sacrifice at all for the other one, just does exactly what it is that they want to do. What kind of marriage is that? We see marriages like this, right? It's very broken. That's our relationship oftentimes with God. Let me just do what I want to do. And then when I need something from you, I'm going to try and get it.
Psalm 44 says a very famous verse that we hear so often in the church. Hear, O daughter, and see, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's home, because the king has desired thy beauty, for he is thy Lord. Anyone remember the last time we heard this verse? I wish someone knew. We said it last week. Last week, right? For the Feast of the Annunciation. For the Feast of the Annunciation. And because, because of its placement with the Feast of the Annunciation, we think to ourselves, oh, clearly, this is referring to the Virgin Mary, right? Hear, O daughter, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's home, for the king desired your beauty. For he is thy Lord. It's not only meant for her, and it's not only meant for women at the marriage sacrament when we end up saying it for the, for the woman to hear for the commandment, right? This is for all of us. We are all supposed to be the church, and the church is the bride of Christ, right? He's calling all of us to this. Guys, uh, I think, kind of distance themselves from thinking this way, right? Hear, O daughter, and incline your ear. I'm not female, therefore, this doesn't apply to me. This is for the females. That's not true. That's wrong, right? Um, This is for all of us. Forget your people. Forget your comforts. Forget what you know. Forget those things that give you pleasure. Forget those things that you think logically you have control over. Look what Abraham did. Abraham is the perfect example of this. Abraham has everything. Abraham has land. He has food. He has plenty of animals. He's got his family, his friends. He's in a perfect state, at least as far as we see it. And God comes and tells him, leave everything. And Abraham says, okay. Try to see whether or not you do that in your life. Even even the small things. Give up your logic just a little bit. There's no logic in doing what Abraham did, right? There's none of this like Rosetta Stone so that he can go and learn uh, a language of the land that he's going to go to or try to figure out what's going to happen over there. there. There's none of this, right? He's saying, go to a place where you're going to be really uncomfortable, where you're giving up all of your possessions. Anything that gave you wealth, you're giving it up. Are you willing to do that? When, when I go with the money that I have to another country, I already feel uncomfortable, right? I don't even, like, let me get my phone out and use Google Translate and try to figure out how it is that I can communicate with these people and they're probably going to think that I'm an idiot and I'm going to try to use, you know, anything that I can so that I can try to make those two or three weeks more tolerable. And the less interaction that I have with people, the better because they're just going to look at me as though I'm an outsider. Look at Abraham. He left, he left his family, right? He left those things that were logical for him. We base ourselves so much on logic. I am guilty of this a thousand percent, right? The way that I try to live my life is completely based on my own logic. And because I do it like that, there's tons of anxiety as a result. Anything that you want to do, it's just tons of anxiety. Look at the anxiety that Abraham has. Where's his anxiety? See what happens when you begin to deny your will. When you sacrifice your own rationale, your own reasoning for another. When you finally get to say to yourself, 
I don't know what's best. That's a big line to be able to admit. I don't know what's best for me. And you defer to someone else. Once you start doing that, a unity begins to form between you and this other person. A unity that harkens back to what it is that we were originally created for. That's why marriage is a path to holiness. It's a daily and hourly opportunity to not have your way. And anyone who's married knows. <laughs> Parents can experience this with their children. Right? Parents experience this with their children. You see that you want to do something. You might be really tired. You don't have the energy because you've had a long day at work. You woke up early. You had to do all of these other things. And now your kid wants to do something. And now you get to sacrifice for them. And that forms bonds. That forms unity. If only all was done for the true glory of God, to really find Him and allow His presence to shine in every bit of our efforts. There's a beautiful book by St. Macarius the Great, who is one of the greatest saints of all time. This is the book. There's two copies of this. There's this one that I have in my hand, and there's another one that's downstairs. I encourage two of you guys to get this and sell this out of your bookstore. This is a good book, written by a great man. It's so great that they put it in his name, right? He's St. Macarius the Great. Okay? St. Macarius the Great, what he says on this. He says, Most wish to obtain the kingdom and desire to have eternal life. But, following their own wills, they refuse to control them. They are rather more like a sower who sows vain desires. They refuse to deny themselves and still wish to receive eternal life, which is a thing impossible. He says people want to have this heavenly life. They want to obtain the kingdom of heaven, but they're not willing to deny themselves. And he says, that is impossible. And again, he says, For those reach the goal successfully without failing, who according to the Lord's injunction deny themselves totally. They deny themselves totally. They keep him alone before their eyes and seek to observe his commandments so that each person of this type goes against his own will. The person that's successful is successful because he goes against his own will. He would reject any kingdom of this world by denying his own interests. He would mingle no other love with the love he has for his Lord. He takes no pleasure in any of the pleasures or passions of this world. He only wishes to place his total love in the Lord as far as he can willingly wish to do so. As much as you're able to deny yourself, that's how much you can progress in your spiritual life. Without that, all of the stuff that we do is of no benefit. It's not of little benefit. It's of no benefit. 
You know, when we think to ourselves, for example, that we speak to any Copt who knows about fasting, anyone, how much do we fast? Oh my goodness, more than half the year, right? 200 days of the 365 days, we're fasting all the time. And they come out with jokes, right? Everyone knows jokes about fasting and how much we fast. Look at how other people that are not Christians, how they perform ascetic works. You have Buddhists and Hindus that do this, right? They do extreme ascetical feats. They can go for long periods of time without eating. Not like us, where we're you know, complaining about the kind of food that we're eating because we didn't like the tofu that this Chinese place gave us. Real, real stuff. I don't know about the tofu downstairs, by the way, because I didn't have it yet. I'm sure it's wonderful. But the point is that we're always complaining about this stuff, right? And we'll see that there's other traditions that have asceticism. Other traditions have this. Islam has asceticism. Everybody has asceticism, right? It's not asceticism in and of itself. And that's the way that we treat it. We think that it's some sort of magical thing. I'm going to fast. And because I fast, I'm going to be able to obtain whatever it is that I want. God is going to be with me because I fast. I'm going to stay up at night, and I'm going to pray when I don't want to pray, and as a result of that, God will reward me because that's how it is that it works. That's every religion. Everyone thinks that way, and it's wrong. It's a wrong way to think. Let me tell you that any ascetic work that you undertake, you have to have a spiritual guide or you will fail. Without a spiritual guide, you can easily go off the deep end and not even know it. The most common way that we do that is how it is that we seek rewards for our asceticism. And we want them immediately and physically. And we'll put timelines on it. God, I will, for the next week, take you very seriously because there's something that's very serious in my life right now. So I'm going to take you very seriously. I'm going to fast and I want you to be able to uh, give me direction as to what it is that I'm supposed to do. Meanwhile, for the last 38 years of your life, there's nothing. There's none of that sort of seeking out God's will. There's no active way of trying to live out His commandments. There's none of this love. There's none of those harsh things that He tells us to do that are in the gospel. But now it's important. Now I need something. Now I, I need to get into this particular school. I need to see whether or not this person is the one that I'm going to marry. So I'm going to focus right now. I'm going to pray really hard. I'm going to do all the hours of the Igbeya. And then you're going to tell me, right? And meanwhile, you're deaf. You can't hear him. And you can't hear him because you're not used to hearing him. He says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I'll speak for myself when it comes to this verse. I've misused this verse so many times in my life, right? Because this thought that you have, okay, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God by doing these things, and then he's going to add all of those things to me. So I'm going to earn them, right? I get them. What I really want is a really nice house. So I'm going to pretend, seek first the kingdom of God, and then he's going to reward me with all of these things, right? That's where asceticism can get you. That's where that warped thought of what it is that you can get out of this is. 
I'll fast and pray and I'll give alms. I'll wake up early to go to church. I'll pray to Igbeya. Just give me what I want. Me. I want, I want something. And what do I want? Whatever it is, if it's not God, it's not it. And then what does he do? He doesn't give it to you. You pray for this week and then you say, okay, maybe maybe at the end of the week he's going to let an angel appear to me and I'm going to see some sort of light and then I'm going to know. And then you pray and then you like, there's no one there. And then what ends up happening? The ascetic work stops immediately. All of this stuff. Oh yeah, well, I guess I wasted a week. Now there's no prayer. Now there's no fasting. Now there's none of this stuff. Because you're not motivated anymore. What was giving you motivation before is trying to earn something. You want something. And it's all because all of these things weren't grounded in the one thing that mattered, which was actually seeking him first. Asceticism isn't a coin that you put into a gumball machine. And then you twist God's arm, and then the gumball comes out. Understand the reason that you do these things. Anyone, anyone can deny themselves. Anyone can accept suffering in this life. But all of that is null and void if it isn't for the sole purpose of following him. Glory be to God forever. We want to thank you so much for listening to St. Basil's podcast. We hope that you have gained spiritually from our remarkable speakers, and we appreciate your support towards this podcast. St. Basil American Coptic Orthodox Church is looking to purchase a home, and we would love for you to be a part of our community. We are looking to raise funds towards this novel mission, Orthodoxy in an American Context within the San Diego area. You may donate online through our website, www.stbasil.net that's www.stbasil.net or click on the link below and it will take you to our donations page you may also mail in your contribution at the address located on our website we thank you for any contribution and may our lord jesus christ always bless your heart and home